insurance carrier to see how they would respond to that. Well done. Deftly, de deftly handled there. I really like that. We didn't Thank get any names. <laughs> we didn't harm any, uh, anybody in the telling of that story. <laughs> no confidences were revealed. I like it. And with that remark, what a better way to start the show. Welcome to Burroughs and Burbs, everybody. It's where we have a comprehensive conversation about real estate in New York City. And this week, episode 18, we're going to skip New York suburbs, New Jersey, Long Island, Westchester County in Connecticut, and Palm Beach and Miami and Los Angeles, because they don't matter. We're going to dive deep into New York. We're going to dive deep into Roberto Cabrera's market report, which came out yesterday. And our first guest and only guest is my partner, Roberto Cabrera. Say hi. We're all guests here together. We're all we have, guests. We have, we have Dominic Longcroft, who's in the house from Sydney, Australia. All right. So can you all see my screen? Yes. All right. So the beginning of this was the pendulum shifts and timing is everything. What do you mean by that? What do you mean the pendulum shifts? Where was the pendulum to begin with and where is it now? Well, since 2015, 2016, there were a lot of policy driven things that happened. First of all, there was tax reform. Then there became, there were changes to the transfer taxes and the mansion tax. Every, there was all of these items that kept being put in place that's kept hurting the sellers. Um, and the marketplace was also being overbuilt. We had tremendous inventory. So since 2015, 16, that was really our high. Since then, the market, it's been like the air coming out of a balloon. It's just been this slow downward process of pricing and demand. At the beginnings of last year, turning at January, every things were starting to turn. And we were really anticipating an extraordinary year last year and then COVID hit and it disrupted absolutely everything. So that downward market got accelerated even more. And now we're just starting, there's been so much pent up demand because there was periods, what, there was period, you know, April, May, June, where we didn't, we couldn't even show property. And then we started being able to show and people started getting out and starting making offers. And the offers were super low. We started, you know, buyers, started to, you know, they, they, many buyers thought that there was going to be a 50% off sale. That never materialized. It just didn't. But we saw tremendous, tremendous uh, discounts. And that slowly started to take hold. And now we're starting to see the volume drastically increase. You can look at that chart right there. That the, look, at the, look at the pending deals. It has just skyrocketed since summer. And it's way above where we were even a year ago. And a year ago at this time, remember that a year, we're 30%, the deal volume in February was 30% higher than last year at this time. And last help year at me, this Help me understand this chart. What's the red line represent and what do the blue lines represent? The red line is the percentage change. So you see that between 25 and 50%. So it's approximately a 30% change in deal volume okay the blue line is actually showing you the numbers of if you look at the the left side it's showing you the numbers of pending deals so you have some 3500 pending deals which are deals that are in contract and waiting to close 
So that is a tremendous increase. And that's a 30% increase in volume from a pre-COVID level. Not, it was in last February, 2020, there was no COVID, right? So right. We, are, we, are, we are at a more, we're, we're transacting at a more robust level than we were a year ago. And that demand is putting more, pre, is putting upward pressure on prices. We're seeing more deals happening than we're seeing apartments come on the market. So talk to me about what the blue lines would look like if I kept looking left, because I can look at December 28 to February 1, and I can look at that and say, okay, that's, that's the old normal. And everything after that was affected by COVID. What does it look like prior to December 28? I think you just said that the market came, uh, was decreasing slowly and steadily from 2015 down to February 1st of this year. Is correct. that about right? Yes, correct. And that, if you see at um, January of last year, it was that was it was starting to rise. It was starting to come out, but that's just a, that's just a market cycle, right? It was right. starting to rise, but that would have continued in a in, in a real nice manner, not as steeply as we've seen since this past summer. But it would in have fact, continued. It to did rise. between February and May of last year. We started to see, we saw deal flow, and then the bottom fell out uh, a little bit in the November December, and then it, it, it fell out a lot. Uh, I guess in the August timeframe. And your market must be completely the opposite of that. Except oh, you're think, not coming, you're not coming down. No, so there's a, there's a shallow trough representing winter and then there's a deep trough representing COVID. That, that's how I read that chart, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. and that's the cycle, this is the normal, that's the normal, we were on a normal cycle of, Mid, mid, mid um, winter activity starts happening. It accelerates through April, May, June. It starts to level off. July, August drops. There's a small market in the September, November, September, October timeframe. And then it drops off again until the following cycle. That's the typical cycle. And we- so for Alex and Scott Hobbs, whose businesses depend upon uh, deal flow, how high is that? Are those, how high is that line going to go? How high are the, are the experts projecting? Because I've heard a couple of conflicting messages, um, coming out of Greg, Greg Heim, the economist's office today, uh, yeah. versus your market report. What did he say? Well, Greg Heim said that he saw that the, the, uh, continued improvement in New York, was going to be slow and steady, but was going to come at the detriment of the surround of the suburban markets. That's so not where you're writing house policies like Alex in Connecticut. You start, you sit up in your chair, you know, or John Engel. You sit up in your chair and you say, "Wait a minute, here," you know, or Scott Hobbs building houses on the beach in Fairfield. You say, "Wait a minute." So that's that's actually John. That's actually not what he said. Okay, that he said that. New York's improvement also will help the suburban areas. That's what he said. I yes. Actually, I actually contacted him and he actually sent me his notes. He's okay. So this is a really important point for all of us because um, what I heard and what you heard were a little bit different. Here's uh, here, let me just read from you verbatim from his notes. Okay. Hampton's Connecticut, New Jersey. 
NYC economic growth will help these markets. I believe he did say that, but he also said that uh, that a, a lot of what drove the suburban markets was flight out of New York City. And, and he said it's going to slow. Yes, it's going to slow. Right. So, but that's not. He's not saying anything different than I'm saying. Okay. So let's go back to your report, which is still on the screen. Um, you said there, the pendulum is swinging and you have in bold here, great historical buying opportunities. Okay. So, so essentially the, the, mar the market shift, the market has been so in favor of buyers. There has been overwhelming amounts of inventory over the past couple of years, which has been downward pressure on prices. We still have 10% more inventory right now than we had a year ago. However, that number is starting to, the overall number of inventory is slowly starting to contract because our deal volume is outpacing the number of apartments that we have coming on the market. We and we have a pretty good clip of apartments coming on the market. It's just that the market is so hot that they're being absorbed. So that's one. Two, the sentiment with sellers was so poor. You could, you, they were desperate. You could have tremendous negotiations with sellers. You could submit offers that even though they might not take them, you could submit offers at 15, 20, 25% off and actually get some sort of response. Where in 2015, 2016, if you did such a thing, they wouldn't even reply to you. But so inventory starting to contract, that's a change in the momentum. With this deal volume, sellers get confident. They feel the market is turning in their favor. So that Delta, their, their willingness to negotiate with you, they're still willing to negotiate. And don't get me wrong, it's still a buyer's market. But that Delta is starting to shrink. They're feeling more confident. And then the last thing is interest rates. Interest rates have been rock bottom. Wells Fargo posted, I think it was three weeks ago, they posted a 30-year fixed jumbo mortgage for 2.625%. Yes. Now, earlier this week, it was 3%. And then I think yesterday it was 2.9 or 2.85. So it's fluctuating. But with all of the federal stimulus coming in and every, you know, Greg Heim always talks about there's no inflation. But even today, he mentioned there's going to be a little hint of inflation. With that, there's those interest rates are going to start to turn. So those are three different metrics, major metrics that are starting to shift so it's still a buyer's market, but it's not going to last forever. And one of the things that's always happened in these markets, I mentioned these markets right here, which we'll talk about, in every single down market that I've experienced in 23 years, the moment the, the momentum starts to turn, it doesn't gradually turn, it changes direction and starts going in the other way. It just Remind does. Remind me what the three metrics are, and then Scott or Alex, ask a question, follow-up question. What well, are the three metrics? Supply. Okay. which is, is up, but is starting to shrink by seller sentiment. Sellers are becoming much more confident and interest rates are low, but their interest rates are going to change course. Okay. I'm putting them in the chat window. Supply is up, but shrinking seller sentiment and rising interest rates. Yeah. Go ahead. So Let's just compare. So I've always said this is the best buying opportunity I've seen in the 23 years that I've been doing this. And typically those buying opportunities come after 
there's been some sort of distress of some sort. So let's just take two different other occasions where there have been amazing buying opportunities. One was after September 11th. After September 11th, for the four or five months after September 11th, the market was, was down tremendously. But then there was a tremendous buying opportunity and people were jumping in the market like crazy. But back then, one thing was different. There wasn't nearly as much inventory after September 11th. There just wasn't. There's been so much construction that has happened in the last 20 years that it just, it's not even comparable. And interest rates in 2001 were between six and six and a half percent. That is a real big difference from where we are right now, where we're below 3%. The other potential opportunity would have been after Lehman Brothers collapsed for essentially almost a year after Lehman Brothers collapsed. In that market, you still had, you had inventory, which wasn't as much of a problem because there had been a lot of building and a lot of development. However, the inventory wasn't to the level that it is now. And interest rates were still not as bad. They weren't six, six and a half percent, but they were five, five and a half, six percent, somewhere in that range. But there was no money. People struggled to, to get financing. And that made the market very, very different. Right now, we're in a scenario where interest rates are rock bottom. Inventory is up. By seller sentiment, for the most part, they're still willing. They're not trying to get bidding wars above ask. They're trying to just get to ask. So there's negotiability there. Those three things never existed in all at one time with buyers. And that makes today an opportunity like this just never been. Go ahead, Scott. What sort of price points are the best? I, I, let me rephrase a little bit. I mean, I used to just be shocked as like you walk along the high line and as you walk along the high line, there's 55 buildings that all sit there and say, you know, apartments from, you know, 2 million to 25 million. And just you look at, at, at this sheer sea of, of buildings and you're going, how many $25 million type apartments is there really that market for? And yet a lot of them were changing hands. Then the international issues came up. So I'm not sure how many are changing hands, but what is like the very top, the, for the very top end, that top 1% of the market, or even that top 1% of the 1%. I mean, how's that market looking right now? Is that a real buyer's market or just the sellers don't have to sell? So who knows? It is a situation where most of those are all developers, right? They're not, they're not individual sellers. Those are apartments that probably haven't sold yet. And that marketplace is really slow. And there is a lot of negotiability there. We were talking, uh, Shlomi, Raveni, and also uh, Steve Kliegerman mentioned, we're seeing 25% negotiability there with all concessions and every, you know, net, net, about a 25, potentially 30% negotiability on those, on those properties. And like Steve said, he said, you might see a property that was once 45 million and it eventually sells for 26, but it should have never been 40 million to start with. You know, it should have probably been priced at 33, 34, maybe 31, 32. And so it sold for 28. So that mark, but that market is extremely soft. And I remember last week, um, it was brought up the fact that there's getting more interest under international buyers, but the reality is people still need to see stuff. And so, it, and, and I don't think much has changed in the last week, but I mean, is there the feel that this summer as travel returns that, that the international market will open up, especially with people who are able to borrow at negative interest rates with European money? 
I think people are hoping so. But, you know, one of the things that's interesting to note is that people do have to, it is a marketplace. You have to come in and touch and feel and, and see what the product is, right? But at the same time, when you think of a project like the Benson, you can't get into the Benson. You're still buying from floor plans and, and what you see online and a virtual, um, you know, a virtual tour. So I'm wondering personally, I, everybody, everybody's starting to field more and more calls from their international buyers, but it's a matter of, will they take the, will they take that plunge? But I think they're getting anxious because they are seeing deal flow accelerate and they don't want to be the ones that miss out on it. Um, but I do, you know, in that scenario where a lot of these things are new developments, you actually, you cannot get into the project because there are construction sites. I wonder what's different from the buying experience. Maybe you can walk the block. I, I don't know, you know, it's something to think about. Well, I, had a, I had a, go ahead, Scott. And sw switching topics just a tiny bit, I mean, is there any feel or any any documentation out there right now as to what's going on inside of the office market? Um, I mean, there's lots of anecdotal stuff, but I mean, ultimately, how much are people going to have to work in New York City or going to have to or want to work in New York City offices? And is there any feel for that from uh, in the realtor community? What the consensus from most people is that it's not going to return to 100%, but we might get, you know, by, by summer, we might get to 60% uh, occupancy in some of those in, in, in the, uh, you know, with all, with all of the office buildings and the commercial spaces. But the retail, that, I mean, the retail is, it won't come until after that, right? Because everybody's got to come, come in and then all the people that are going to lunch in the middle of the day and all that type of thing, you know, the people got to get to the offices first. And I think that even with even a year from now, or two years from now, people are thinking that we'll be at 80, 85% of what we were. Office. So it's still going to be, yeah, office. office space. So the full return of 100%, you know, and, but maybe, you know, there, things are going to look different. It doesn't mean that people won't be coming back to the city. They just may not be going to an office. So, so that, I think that sector has got multiple years uh, to work through. And something, really? some discussion about converting some of the properties into residential, but the structures just don't work. You know, it's just. They I just hear you work. saying we're going to get back to 85% within one year, but getting that last 15% may never occur or may take many years. You're saying just like Yankees, the Yankees may start playing games in front of a stadium full of people about the same time that people are comfortable coming back to the office and resuming their old normal, working in an office around other people. You know, those things may all, both occur within a year, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to sell my place in Palm Beach and move my business back here, right? right. No, right, for sure. I mean, I, 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 there's a, a client of mine who's a big hedge fund guy and I slightly lost a little bit of touch of him and I saw his property come on the market with a huge price on it. And I said, where are you going now? He said, we moved last year, Palm Beach. That's where he went. Right. I mean, that's the elephant in the room is that we've talked about interest rates and we've talked about the COVID effect, but we haven't talked really about tax policy as being a driver. It wasn't one of your three major drivers on uh, the New York recovery and the suburban recovery. Because that's still a hurdle. There, that, that's a, the hurdles that we have are the mayor's race, 
there's, but not just the mayor's race, there are handfuls of city council seats that are up. Um, taxes, we have potential pied tear tax. There's definitely some hurdles coming, but the moment people want to, New York is an ethos. People want to be here because they feel it and they live it and they breathe it. And they, you know, that's just, that's what it's all about. It's either you like that and you're a part of that and you want to be a part of that or you, or you don't, you know? And I, but I think the city's going to slowly start to feel safe. And also it's also the fear of missing out the moment, the momentum is just like the marketplace right now, the moment it starts to turn, it just turns. So we're, I think the next four or five months is going to be very, very busy. And the fall, where we are in the fall is going to be the biggest barometer of, of where we are, really. Coming back to you, you I, I watched one of those little funny clips that's really sad for out in San Francisco where there's some governing um, challenges and a newspaper, not a newspaper, a uh, news reporter was interviewing someone about getting robbed and somebody robbed him while doing the interview about the person getting robbed. <laughs> and I think there's some worries inside of um, New York City, again, about a little bit under the return of the lawless days. I mean, we, we remember back in the 70s, I mean, New York was a little bit tense as you're walking through there and you gotta be paying attention. And over the last 10 years, you walk almost anywhere and just, you know, you're not even, you lose some of that street smart. Now, things a little bit different. Um, so, I mean, that governance issue is a big one. Anything more to add on the safety side of things besides for the tax or? That's a, well, that's another thing. I think the, you know, you're safest when there's people on the street, right? The more people that are out and about, the safer you really feel. And the more people that come in, that's going to be, that's going to build on itself. And that, that in itself, I think is going to help a lot of the safety, but you know, that's one of the big, that's, that's the mayor's race. That's the city council seats. Those are the real people really need to focus on this year in particular more than any other time period, because we really need someone who also has some business savvy to bring the city back. We really do. I'm, I'm really concerned about the way far left-leaning governance for the city. Are you alone or are you expressing something that most New Yorkers are feeling? In the last few episodes, we've talked to a number of top agents in the city about the luxury market, and they are all echoing that anxiety. Yeah, every, I mean, everybody's in, everybody's talking about it, and, but hopefully people become active about it because there's, there's, there's been such passivity about the local governance in the sense of real, the real estate industry, in my opinion, as far as brokers, they're just like, yes, someone else will deal with it. You know, someone else will go to that protest about the pied-a-terre tax, whatever the case may be. There needs to be a little bit more activism from the brokerage community. Um, I spoke to, you know, some of the top candidates that I'm hearing from people and people that are, people are, that are, that have a, that are much closer to the issues than I am, uh, that um, Andrew Yang and that Ray McGuire are probably the most business friendly and real estate friendly. Um, the person, a person, one of my clients who I saw yesterday, who is really good friends with Andrew Yang, he said that he has tremendous relationships 
on a national level with people with in Washington where he could be someone who could be very, very instrumental in drawing a lot of money to New York and that he would be the most effective governor of that, of the mayor's office. So we'll see, I need to learn more, but. Um, is, he, is he the closest thing that New Yorkers feel, uh, the closest thing to Bloomberg? to most New Yorkers. I guess we call that a technocrat, you know, somebody who has a technical oriented solution to governing and says, I'm gonna solve this through technology and business and relationships instead of uh, using other tools. I think that may be the case in the reality of how you're analyzing it, but I don't think that is the view of the way people view them. And that connection needs to be made. I told my friend yesterday, I said, if you're close to Andrew Yang and you really believe in him, then you need to communicate to him that he needs to communicate broadly that he has, he has the relationships to bring money to this area. All right. I, unless there's a follow-up question on that, I want to come back to your market report and ask you questions about the green boxes on the screen now. I don't, I'm not sure I understand it fully. So if I don't understand it fully, maybe, maybe I'm not the only one. What does that mean? Biggest price killer time. Right. Time, time on the market erodes your value. So the longer you have to price, right? This is a New York, even when New York is in a down market, it's a fairly efficient place. You, the, the marketplace really does dictate where you where you're the market will do its work if you overprice though people will not give you offers and if you try to stick to you price unrealistically you're just not going to sell it whereas let's just say you have a million dollar a property that has a value of a million dollars if you come to the market at 1.2 you might end up selling that in six months at 900 but if you came to the market very close to a million you might even in the process of, of revealing it to the marketplace and, and creating, orchestrating multiple interests, you might be able to get a million, a million 25,000, a million 50,000, you don't know. It's a matter of how you bring it to market. It's like you, th you throw a rock in a pond, the first wake, that first, that first response, that first week is where you get the most response. As time, as you get further and further away from that, that point when you bring it on the market, the, the demand slowly starts to diminish because the marketplace here is, is it's so efficient where that there, there are people that are looking for a two bedroom, two bath on the Upper West Side. And they have seen, there's a whole pack of people that are in purchasing a uh, pool of purchasers that are looking for exactly that. They've seen everything on the market. The moment the next thing comes, they all go to see it. And then it either sells or it doesn't. And then the next come, comes on, they all go to see that. And then they all go to see this and that, and then that they just get left behind. So here you look back in 2015 when the market was booming. If you sold in less than 60 days, you got essentially 100% of your asking price. As you get to 61 days, from 61 to 120 20 days, if it took you that long to sell it because you were mispriced, you had to negotiate essentially three and a half percent. Are you saying? The only thing that changed between 2015 and 2021 was, you know, if I priced my apartment well in 2015, I had a high degree of a high probability of getting 100 percent 
if I was able to sell it in 60 days. And now if I'm able to sell it in the first 60 days, I have a high probability of only getting 96%. Correct. Oh my God, I lost 4% between 2015 and 2021, even if I did everything right. But that gap now is gonna change directions. It's going to change direction because the time on the market is going, days on the market is gonna start to compress because there's demand. Roberto, if somebody, if somebody, if you take you, uh, an apartment off of the market, how long do you have to stay off the market to become new again? If a lot of people are using Street Easy and Street Easy, what happens if you come off the market, you have to be off the market, I think for three months before you can bring it back. And then the, the ticker starts again on day one. However, if you were to say, let's say you've been on the market for 180 days and you switch brokers, the moment you switch brokers, that clock starts again, new right from just right away. You can switch from one day to the next to a different broker and it becomes a new listing. The thing about that is it, it makes you feel better to see those numbers small, but buyers are so educated now they can just click back and say, oh, that was with another broker for six months and look at the price. And I mean, all of the information is really, really there. Yep. Hey, Lisa, I see you down there. You're on mute, but we see you wave. All right. I'm so, unmuting myself. Hi. Hi. All right. So we're talking about <laughs> days on market. And uh, while on the one hand, this chart seems to suggest how critical it is to getting 95 to 100 uh, percent and that energy in the first few days, uh, sometimes the, the bigger trend is that the water line, the water level has decreased by four points in the last uh, six years. And the, there's nothing you can do about that. Look at the um, difference, John. John, look at it on the 2021, look at the difference. If, you're, if you sell it in less than 60 days, you get 96% of your purchasing price. But look, if you start getting, if it takes you four months plus to sell your apartment, you're at 13% discount. That's a big discount. It's a very efficient market. If you price right, you get in, you get out, it's also, from a standpoint of a seller, if you sell very, if you put your apartment on the property on the market, very close to where you really feel it's going to trade, you're going to get multiple interests. And the moment you have at least, the moment you have two offers or three offers, you have leverage. Even though you may not get your full asking price, you have leverage and you're negotiating from a standpoint of strength because you have multiple people that are actually reaching for your property. And that's what you want. You want to generate multiple interest. If you overprice, you lose your entire market. But Roberto, what I'm looking at is a chart that said, if I screwed up in 2015, what does it cost me? It cost me eight points. If I screw up in 2021, it cost me nine points. It cost me nine points, not eight points. Where are you? It cost me eight or nine points if I miss the first four months of energy with my house. It's only costing me one extra point this year. Where, what, was, what was your comparison? Well, 100 to 92, it's eight points. 96 to 87, it's nine points. Now it's 13 off of 100. Where would you really only, but, but, but my, my, my ceiling was only ever 96% to, to begin with. You're the worst client. <laughs> I sure am. <laughs> 
Client That's like not the you. first time he's heard that. At, you are horrible. I'm going to let you be big screen and say that again. Go ahead. How you bad are, am I? You are a horrible client. That is a client that you just don't want to have because you're not li- you. If the whole point is you're putting it on the market to sell it. If you're not, if you're not, you know, if you're fishing, then I'm less, you know, I'm going to, I'm less inclined to even want to work with you. It's like, do you want to sell it? I will help you do that. I will execute. But if we're going to fool around, then you're wasting time. And then you're going to have a history on the market that you were on the market for three months and you never sold it before. Why was that? It's just, you start to create a, uh, a narrative about your apartment that you don't want. I see Serena down there. She's on the call now. Serena and I need to make the Connecticut chart that answers this chart. Because what happened in Connecticut is I had a $750,000 house last year and I took it off for the requisite 90 days and I put it back on for $799 in order to, because I was accounting for that, in order to get the same price. And we did. I've got, a, I've got an offer uh, that was better than what we were able to achieve in the fall. That's the Connecticut effect. That, that's what's going take on now. To get that off? 90 days. You have to take things off for 90 days. How long did it take you to get the offer after you put it on the market? Again, so you're right. That has to occur in the first 30 days. Absolutely. And how long did it take? It took about 30 days to get that offer. So you're right. Um, you know, come, I'll, I'll pull what did it you back. Say? What did you say? <laughs> I clearly heard that you were right, Roberto. That's what I heard. Well, I, I do want to add that in Darien, the market's on fire. There was a house at 39 Christie Hill Road. It was on the market for two and a half years, slowly reduced the price. The last list price was 1349. Um, it rented for the last 12 months, came back on the market this past Friday. Sold with seven, seven, sold with seven offers. It's going to go well above ask. And that's not the only uh, transaction that happened this weekend. Almost every house that came on the market in Darien below $1.6 million had multiple offers and closed or will close. What's your advice? Because if I read Roberto's uh, market report, the advice is, the pendulum is swinging. You have time, but you don't have very much time if you're a buyer. What's your advice in Darien to buyers who are getting uh, beat out uh, on everything they're bidding on? You don't have much time at all. We have 15-minute showings, um, and they're backed up. Um, you know, As you're coming in the front door, the previous showing is leaving the back door. You have to make a decision you know, within hours. Um, most of them are going to best and final and at least honoring all the showings for the weekend, but a lot of them are taking offers as they're going. Um, I had five clients make offers this weekend of those five, two of them won, uh, substantially over ask. When I asked the listing brokers about my other buyers, we were solidly in the middle of the pack, even though we were well above ask. If the you're market- batting 40, 40%, your batting average is better than most. If you are winning 40% of the deals that you're going after, you're doing okay. Well, I do have to say that's because we've been chasing this market for the past five months. And I think my clients are um, tired. So what is your reaction to Roberto's chart when he said, when I said, you're right, uh, all the energy occurs in the first 
30 days. His chart says less than 60 days of contract. I, I said in Connecticut, it, it, all the energy is in the first 30 days or even in the first week. You just first said week. that in, in Darien, all the energy is in the first weekend. First weekend, and that's the same for Westport too, and Wilton and Weston. It's, it's, we cannot keep properties on the market. So under, Roberto, under is New York heading in that direction? I, what you're describing, I in my 23 years, I've seen that type of market so many times. So I totally get it. And that's the whole, you know, when you're, what we used to do, the strategy that we used to have is that we would, we would get a new exclusive. We would list it, say March 1st, and say first showings are not until March 14th. And slowly over two weeks, we know that people would start to, they would start to collect buyers and we just get this pent up demand. And then at the very last moment, we say open house on Sunday, we'd have 45, 50 people coming to the door and that set, we're orchestrating the sense of, wow, this place is, people want this. And the next thing you know, you have four or five, six offers gone. What I hear you saying with the headline of your market report is you, is you believe that New York is coming out of a trough and is actually heading toward that kind of market again. We're seeing multiple offers on apartments. So are we going to get, I mean, it's going to, it's not going to spike, but we are now in an upward direction. The direction has changed. It's starting to increase. And I can tell you that come year's end, next year, the following year, the buyers who are coming into the marketplace are going to say, wow, I should have bought in early 2000, in 2021. In the is that the whole take, is that the major takeaway from this hour? I should have bought in 2021. In Manhattan, yes. Or unless you didn't buy in fall of 2020. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, did you I, see that email I sent you at 401. Can you open that? Yep. Go ahead. Um, Real quick, guys, I have to jump because I have a five o'clock call, but this has been great. Thank you very much. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate it. Take care. So, John, can you scroll down? This is a property that was, I want you to scroll. So look at, so look at this right here. This property came, look at the time on the market. It started at $15,995 at the bottom, and it's at $10 million. And they priced that, when I first saw it, I, was, I, I laughed because the price was ridiculous. But had they priced that at 12 or 11.5, they'd be done at 10. I, I had a client who made an offer on this last year at 7.5. They didn't take it, but they'll, they'll probably take below nine. What, what is a buyer, what is a, how does a buyer read this chart? Does a buyer look at this and say, there, this is a seller with a long history of price reduction. I think I'll wait for the next one. I don't know what you mean. What do you? Well, I know some agents, and maybe maybe Serena can help me here. But I uh, I know there are some agents who have a philosophy of no price reductions. I'm going to price it well. I'm going to put it out there, and I'm going to leave it alone. And I have others where I can look at a chart like the one you've got in front of me, and I can see a history. And I and I think that I'm playing a game of poker with this agent, and I think that he's about to. Uh, that he's been bluffing all along and maybe he's still bluffing and this, and we still have some room to go. In this place, you're playing poker with a guy and you're looking at all of his cards. Right. 
I that's mean, what I'm saying. Yeah. That's why you don't overprice. But sometimes a seller refuses to be reasonable about their listing price. Absolutely. I, I don't necessarily fault the brokers in these scenarios. Like if you scroll down, go to the next property. I mean, there's just like four or five. There's eight on here, actually. But it's just scroll down, scroll down, scroll down. Keep going to the next property. Keep going. Right here. So this is, look at the, right here. This one came on. Oh, this is another. Keep going. Go to the next one. This is another that's way too long. But it's still half the price right there, almost. From 9975 to 5.9. But scroll, scroll a little further down to some that are, there's a little bit less time period. There's 260 some days on the market or something like that. There's a lot of floor plans here. Um, okay, right here. This came on the market in August at 1.97, almost 2 million. It's now down to 145. And the last price reduction was in November. There's more room there still. Really? Because they made an eight, a 9% reduction. And you could not have anticipated playing poker with this agent that he would, he would, he would follow a 9% drop with a 19% drop. Who does that? And yet you're saying that this broker has probably got one more drop in him. I'm certain that this broker got an offer of something like 17165 in the beginning and they didn't touch it. And now they're priced at 145. I would put money on that. And that they've got more room to go. Probably without a price reduction since no since Thanksgiving, there's more room there. How much time do I get before I have to make a uh, price reduction in New York these days? Personally, if you, I think if, if you, if three weeks, if you're not getting showings, you have to drop the price. If you're getting showings and you're not selling, you have to drop the price. And, and these are, these are two, three week cycles. That's all you have. And you have to keep going and get it done. But you don't want to also experience a lot of price reductions. So you just want to come on right. I absolutely abhor reducing a price because you literally are, you're showing your cards, you're showing your hand. So, so I like to price accurately. What do you do? Can I ask, what do you do when your seller insists they want to price it at a much higher number? I literally told a client recently that um, you should go with a different broker. And, you know, they didn't want to, um, but they want a premium price for, you know, what do you tell, what do you tell your clients? What I try to do is... Um, and, and that's understandable. That happens all the time, right? So, you know, sellers are the ones that shoot themselves in the foot. What I try to say is I, I can agree. I'll agree to do that. But if we don't have an offer in two weeks, you agree to reduce the price to this level. And you, you have a compromise because listen, that we're doing this together. We'll try your way, but if it doesn't work, we have to reduce price because you've got to keep this momentum. If you stretch this out for two months, three months, four months, you are going to lose your market and you're going to come away with less than you would have if you price it where I'm suggesting. That's just, I try to get an agreement with them and I try to even put it in writing. Say, listen, let's just write it down so that we agree with it because you're, you're in a relationship, right? You're, it's, a, it's a contract between you and them. I try to get them to agree to that. Your thesis was the pendulum is shifting and buyers don't have that much more time. I want to, in our last, we have four minutes or so. 
I want to draw your attention to market news. You called out in your market report these headlines. Let's go through them. What do they tell us about the current state of the market? And do they support your thesis? Greg Heim already said he, he sees a recovering market. We heard that at the top of the show. Look at all of them. Manhattan luxury market, best in six years. That is true. That's true. Hampton, that's about the Hamptons. There's essentially no inventory there. All right, Hamptons before it breaks. So one, so that's the first indication that this won't last forever, right? Go on, mortgage rates. Scott can comment on that, the Hamptons. Yep. It's not, and, and I mean, nothing lasts forever, but the question is, do you go from scalding red hot down to frothy and healthy? And so there's a lot to go before this gets to, I mean, there's no bargains in the Hamptons for the next at least several years, barring some sort of external externality. Is that true in Connecticut too? I'd say likely. I mean, you aren't going to find bargains. You, I mean, again, you may, it, it, I, I don't anticipate you'll stay as super hot as it is, but as we were talking about the other day also, that so many transactions happen that generate other transactions. You know, 65% of the people want to stick around in the same area. So you sell a house, now you got to find another house for them. And then that keeps building that whole pressure and toward Roberto's part and um, Serena, you know, you got this big mass of buyers out there that are all looking for the right property. And the moment something comes on, you got to move like lightning. And, and that just creates the urge. And we have highly competitive people that don't like to lose. And when you lose the fourth, fifth, sixth time, all of a sudden you start going, I'm never going to overpay. And instead you go, yeah, I'm overpaying. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I'm not gonna pay whatever I have to pay. I need the house. And so, you know, there's a, there's a period here that's really good for selling and it has a long way to come back to being average. John, go to the, as opposed to going to the headlines, let's go to the, uh, the mortgage, go to the, back to the newsletter and just go down to the mortgage rates. There's, a, there's an analysis there, which is really important because one of the biggest factors that we spoke about, one of the three was interest rates. And I think that this, if you see the difference in just a couple of points on interest rates and how it affects your purchasing power, it's, it's mind boggling. Oh, okay, there we go, purchasing power. So 1 million at 2.7, 4,000. 1 million at 4.6%. Here in the screen. Oh, I have to share it, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, it's really interesting to me. <laughs> so okay. So right here, look at this, 30-year um, fixed mortgage, 30%, 3%, which is more or less where we are now, versus 4.625%, which is where we were in the fall of 2018, not far off. A million dollars, or here now the interest rates are down to 2.75, I should have updated that. A million dollars borrowed at 2.75%, which you might be able to get right now, is 4,082 a month. A million dollars borrowed essentially two and a half years ago would have cost you over a thousand dollars more a month. That's $12,000 a year in savings. And if you look at it another way at 2.75%, $4,082 a month gets you a million dollars at 4.625%. It would cost you, you would, you would only be able to borrow essentially 794,000, 800,000. That's a 20% difference. And nobody's even pointed out the fact that that thousand bucks a month that you're saving on your mortgage, you're plowing it into Tesla stock and making what another 500% on your money. 
So uh, it's you know it's even it's even more ridiculous in the in the last few months than than it otherwise would be. So that you know interest rates going up is going to affect the marketplace. And what the thing is, it doesn't just affect buyers, your purchasing power, because you won't be when interest rates go up, you can't buy tomorrow what you can buy today. But also from seller's standpoint, they also have to realize that they too. That means that buyers don't have the wherewithal to pay, pay them what they want to get paid. So that's going to have downward pressure on their ability to price. Mm -hmm. So interest rates is a big one. If I if I want to read uh, if I want to dig into this market report in greater detail, where do I go to get it? Go to robertocabrera.com and it'll just pop up. And then can I subscribe so that I get it every month or do I, think, I have to send you a note? I think you can at the bottom. Okay. And if you can't, just send me a note. Okay. I put most of it, 60% you know, percent of it into my uh, email today, but there's more that didn't make it into my email, such as your um, neighborhood magazines, which I think if you're really serious about buying in Tribeca versus... Uh, Upper East Side, then you really need to subscribe to some of those neighborhood magazines and really understand your neighborhood at a really so that you can have a more intelligent conversation maybe with your broker. If I told you I want to buy in Manhattan, you'd say where? I'd say I don't know because they're all the same. Well, you have to dig into those magazines and and you know have a point of view, yeah. uh, so that you can you can be a good client. You already chastised me. I have to be a good client. I have to be a good partner in the process. I got that loud and clear. Um, I don't want to be a nightmare client. I'm not selling your house. <laughs> um, what else do you guys have in our last few minutes with Roberto? It's already a little bit after five, but uh, I think this has been tremendously helpful. I learned a lot about what's driving the New York market and where and where your predictions differ from the economists and some of the other agents we've talked to. Keep drawing disparity between our economists and me, and we are saying the same things. <laughs> Just on different timelines, I think. Uh, the economist says that New York's strength comes at some expense to, you know, uh, uh, Connecticut suffers. And yet I heard you say, as New York gets better, Connecticut gets better with it. <clears throat> Roberto? Yeah. Um, what do you what is your feeling on the foreign buyers coming in soon once everyone gets vaccinated? Scott mentioned that. I, I mean, once they come, at least the condo market will go up strongly because they don't foreigners don't right. buy in co-ops. So right. um, it's gonna be strong. I think a lot of people are feet they're they a lot of foreigners have fear of missing out because they know that there are deals mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. But again, they need to feel and touch and smell and, and walk through. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of people just like Daniela said last week, you know, they get so close and at the last moment, they're like, I got to see it. I feel like that's a great niche for you, aren't you? You're bilingual, right? So do you, do the South Americans go want to partner with you all the time? I try. Yeah. I'll try to send them your way. I appreciate that. <laughs> It's between New York and Miami, right? <laughs> yes. I heard, I heard Danielle Schlisser, I heard 
Louise Phelps Forbes and Lisa Littman, all three talk about the difference between the condo and co-op market right now as being rather dramatic. Can you address that briefly before we sign off? I think that's critical because 80%, I think they said 80% of the energy in the market right now is chasing condos. Yeah. Um, and they said if the co-ops don't get their act together, they're going to miss out. They're talking about co-op because co-ops have, they require a minimum minimum down, some 20%, some 30, 40, 50. And then in certain buildings, really exclusive buildings, they say that you can't finance at all. So in, they're really talking about some of the buildings where they're asking that you can only finance a third of the price or none of the price. It's that you're What's the purpose? What you're doing is you're reducing the pool of prospective purchasers for your property. You might have someone who can buy your $7 million apartment and they've got, you know, they're a young couple. They haven't built the wealth yet, but they're, you know, they're extraordinary business people with great income, yet they have, you know, they have young family. They can pay $7 million probably in cash and probably have another, maybe another, maybe another, you know, four or $5 million left over, but they make three or $4 million a year, but they can't get into your building because the building requires that you pay cash. You got to put 7 million down and then you need to have two to three times the value of that apartment in liquid assets before they consider you. So you need $21 million in cash just, and that's not including your retirement accounts or anything else. You're talking about brokerage statements and cash in order to be considered that is a building that's shooting themselves in the foot because they could have, if, if they didn't have those requirements, instead of having four or five people that could potentially, people that are interested in that apartment, they might have 30 or 40. What does that do? Demand puts upward pressure on price. It's just a, it's, it's just a foolish thing. So what happens? How does this story end? The co-ops get, get, you know, figure this out? They, some of the, a lot of these people that put these rules in place, are out of town. Very, they're very old, stuffy people that today could not buy in the building themselves, and they like to have control of the building. And that's and their whole life is experienced. I'm on the board. I'm the treasurer. You can't. You know, we're not going to let these people in. You know, it's just it's foolish. So that foreign investor that Lisa is going to introduce to you, you're immediately marching them over to a condo not a co-op because you can't beat this by yourself and it's not going to change in one year. Most co-ops won't even consider them because most of their assets are probably in Europe and they won't even consider them. You know what? Connecticut. Send them out to Connecticut. <laughs> can't get ice cream on Sunday nights, right? Is that what Lisa said? You can get anything in Connecticut on a Saturday night. Anything. We have a governor who's just relaxing all the rules. So it's all Connecticut is open for business. Like Texas? They're talking, they're talking to the casinos out here. They're talking about uh, you know, the marijuana here. <laughs> you, they've already relaxed the liquor laws, so you can get that anytime. Oh yeah, you can get you can all the vices, all the vices on a Saturday night. All right. Welcome to Connecticut, and maybe I ought to shut up about that. <laughs> Open for business. So, That's why there are no homes available. So what's your conclusion on New York? How, do, how does 2021 20, play out, the pendulum, 
Tell me one last statement about the pendulum and how much time I have as a New York buyer. You, you just have to get to it. If you're interested in buying in the next, in the next two, one, two, three years, you should do it sooner rather than later because literally the, it's going to change. It's a New York is a momentum environment. And once people start, it's already, it's just turned. People don't feel, people don't want to miss out. And the crowd just starts to come and it gets competitive. And the next thing you know, there's not going to be properties that, you know, there's, there's no inventory. Prices went up. I should have bought. And the people will get priced out and they'll never buy. All right. I think this was a great hour. Thank you, Roberto. Thank, Thank, you. You. Thank you. Thank you, Dominic. <laughs> I love Thank you out there. You, uh, Scott Hobbs. And uh, I'll see yeah. everybody. Invisible man. Bye. Signing off. Bye. Bye, guys. Thanks. <laughs>